Hi, I'm Don Cameron. And I'm Kat Lovericks. We are your co-hosts for a new intellectual property law podcast series brought to you by Breskin and Parr LLP. You can find our podcasts at breskinpar.com slash podcast, and there you can access all the episodes and additional information on each topic. Today's topic is fintech, and I've long held the belief that banks and financial institutions are nothing more than information technology and computer service companies posing as financial institutions. And I think you're going to hear more about that that's exactly what they are, or certainly what they're getting into today with our two guests. And uh, one of our guests is Paul Horrible. Uh, Paul's a partner with um, our Toronto office. He's the chair of our financial technology group and a member of the electrical and computer technology group, and seriously a go-to person in terms of getting patent protection for anything to do with blockchain, uh, computers, telecommunications, uh, or anything electronic or computer related. Today, we also have with us Jason Hines, who's a partner with Breskin and Parr in our Waterloo office. Jason's a member of our fintech group, as well as our AI, electrical and computer tech, industrial designs, mechanical and industrial processes, nanotechnology, and generally an IP patent guru. Or was it patent rock star, Jason? I'm not sure. I think rock star will do. Okay. <laughs> and Jason, thank you. Thank you for coming all the way here from our Waterloo office to be with us today. And and Paul, thank you for coming all the way down the hall uh, to, to be with us today. Talking to both of you about this podcast beforehand, uh, it looks as though we're going to break it down into two sections, what I'm going to call Patents 101, which is really an introduction to patents and, and why it's important in this particular area. And secondly, what is fintech and how do you get patents in the fintech sector? So let's start off with a really simple question. What is the point of patents? So I guess I'll start with this uh, answering this question. I think the point of patents is to reward inventors for coming up with great ideas. Um, we generally view that as a good thing for society to have great new inventions and for the public to learn about them. And so over the course of history, we've developed this system that does that and does exactly that. It rewards inventors by granting them a monopoly on the use of their invention or the making of their invention in exchange for something. Uh, we, we don't just give them monopoly for nothing. We want to know what the invention is that they've developed. And that sort of, uh, that, that's sometimes called the bargain theory of patents. Uh, it's a something for something exchange. The inventors give us their idea. They give us a description of how it works and how to make it work. And in exchange, they get a time limited monopoly. So we're telling them, okay, you can charge whatever price you like for this that the market will bear. Um, in it for a limited amount of time, but after that time period is up, uh, the public will have the benefit of your invention and they can make use of it freely. Right. Thanks, Paul. And it's, it's kind of important to put it in context and sort of look at the world as it existed before patents came along. And so you go back to sort of the existence of guilds. And one example that comes to mind is the Venetian glass making guilds. So you have an industry now that's developing, you know, very sophisticated techniques for manufacturing glass. Highly, highly valuable, highly sought after. But instead of allowing this information to flow into the public domain, this information was kept, you know, as a trade secret and under very strict secrecy requirements by these guilds. And, you know, if you look at the, the two sort of main pillars of justification for the patent system, you know, this theory that we want to reward people for doing research, which is expensive and time consuming, we see value in those products being improved, but also in this public disclosure aspect, 
right? If people are encouraged to not only do research, but also publish that research in a way that the public has access to it, that's valuable to society as a whole. It often gets overlooked, but the patent documents, the patent database is the largest technical library in the world. And, you know, if mankind were wiped out tomorrow, you could go back and recreate, you know, most, if not all of what we have today by looking at the archives in the patent office and, and watching technology evolve, you know, as you trace through, you know, the early applications and early patents to, to what we have today. So that public disclosure component certainly cannot be understated. It's actually quite important. Uh, or cannot be overstated. It's actually quite important. Uh, it's interesting that you mention uh, glassmaking guilds because I think the first patent as we know them today that was granted in the UK and England uh, was done, that was done in 1449 and it was to a man called John of Utnam. And he was a glassmaker from Flanders. And uh, at the time, England was having real trouble getting glass made in that country. <laughs> And uh, there was a guild that was in Flanders. And uh, in order to get John of Utnam to come to England and make glass there and teach people how to make glass, they gave him a patent, 20-year monopoly on the making of this glass. And, but in exchange for giving them this information on how to make this glass so that other people eventually could make that glass themselves and learn from this and eventually develop that technology. And so that was one of the first patents, uh, if not the first patent, granted in England. Right, and that became incredibly popular and led to other, other patents being granted by the Crown, which eventually led to kind of an overreach where patents were being granted for things that were not necessarily valuable to society, but might have actually been detrimental. Right. I mean, uh, monarchs quickly realized that uh, in exchange for granting patents for some sort of reward for themselves, um, or that they could grant patents in exchange for a reward for themselves. And this led to English Parliament uh, passing a law called the Statute of Monopolies, effectively banning patents, except for patents that met certain criteria. And those criteria were that the they would only grant patents for things that were new that hadn't previously been known. And those patents had to be for a limited time only. And that was effectively the first patent statute in the Commonwealth. And if you fast forward to um, sort of the founding of America and the American Civil War, the language that we have today actually kind of builds off of those initial concepts. And Thomas, and Thomas Jefferson in the U.S. wrote the first patent statute, and that language is largely in the Canadian version of the statute today, particularly around issues about subject matter, which is inherently relevant to what we're talking about in the fintech space, because the Patent Act rewards and gives you patents for inventions that include new and useful arts, methods, manufacturers, machines, or compositions of matter. And so in order for you to get a patent today, you're still relying on language that was written in 1793. One of the challenges that the courts have wrestled with and practitioners have wrestled with is how do you take an invention like, you know, whether it's a genetically modified mouse or some new method of, of hedging a transaction in a financial space and, you know, processing microsecond duration transactions or, or, or sales, um, how do you deal with that and put that in the framework of language that's over 200 years old? So the object of the exercise is to get whatever idea or invention you have and jam it, stuff it, or load it into one, one or more of those legal cubbyholes that are set out as the definition of patentable subject matter. That's right. And, and we've had, you know, thankfully, they're not sort of just sitting there in isolation. We've had, you know, court decision after court decision that's helped given us, give us some guidance about what are the boundaries of these buckets and, and how can they be applied. 
um, in, in combination with some general principles that we should be looking at these things for, with a broad view, right? If we want to encourage innovation, if, if Paul said, if one of the, the purposes of, of the patent system is to promote innovation, you know, you, in order to do that, you need to recognize that these buckets of, of categories or categories need to be flexible and they need to grow over time. So what qualifies as a machine today, you know, a, 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 an improvement to a computer with a, with a memory and a processor, input-output devices, that was certainly not the same kind of machine that Jefferson contemplated in the 1790s. But we recognize it, it still is a machine. Yeah, wasn't that one of the first names for a computer? Was a computing machine? Right, exactly, and and it's it's a device. You know, it's a it's a it's capable of doing things. There's a lot of analogies between a computer that exists today uh, and a mechanical calculator that would have existed, you know, over 100 years ago. So um, those categories and buckets have evolved. But when you look at fintech, as we'll talk about in a few minutes, you know, there's this spectrum of of cases. There's a spectrum of technologies that sort of span the gamut of fintech. Some of them are very clearly going to fall within some of these buckets. Some of them, it's going to be less clear. And, and one of the challenges for practitioners like Paul and myself is to figure out how we can best fit those, those inventions in particular buckets, but also explain that to the patent office because their, their role is to be the gatekeeper and not necessarily let something through um, that doesn't meet one of these sort of requirements. Well, let's, let's talk a little, bit, a little bit about those requirements. Uh, what actually do you need to get a patent? Uh, we talked about one of the things in the earliest patent statute, which was that yes, the invention actually has to be new. And we've mentioned that there has to be the right kind of subject matter. Uh, there are some other requirements as well uh, beyond just new and correct subject matter, and that's non-obviousness. Um, new is not enough. You actually have to be a non-intuitive improvement or what else is already out there. And uh, you have to have utility. And utility means it just has to work uh, the way that you say it works. Uh, it's usually a low threshold to cross, but sometimes you do run into that one. Well, let's talk about utility for a second. I mean, um, so utility, you see it much more relevant in sort of the pharmaceutical space where if you promise to cure cancer or, or you know, talk a lot about curing cancer, you know, you may be held to a standard where you have to actually sort of you know, put your money where your mouth is and say, you know, I've, I've actually done something that I've intended to do. Um, less, of, less of an issue, I think, in the fintech space and sort of the more traditional mechanical or electrical arts. Well, I guess, I guess though, in, in the area of computer-related stuff, if I've got an idea for a, a tool or, a, or some type of um, computing system or process, I not only have to have the idea of it, but I also have to, way of, have, to have a way of carrying it out. Right, in order to have a it, exactly, that's attention. a good point, Don, and, and it has to go beyond just the mere idea. And, and this is kind of relevant to this analysis that we'll talk about in the concept of an abstract idea. Mm-hmm. And there's this great sort of tension between an abstract idea that kind of floats in the ether and a realized practical idea that can be implemented. Um, whether it's implemented in a general computer or some specialized hardware, it's that practical application and that technical implementation which is really kind of at the heart of what the patent office wants to see today. So when we talk about fintech patents, regardless of where you are on that spectrum, the patent office wants to see some sort of practical effect. They want to see a technical effect. And that has evolved over time. I mean, early on, the patent office was allowing very, very broad patents in the business method space. You know, anything under the sun could be patented by man. Well, we have a couple of cases that, you know, Paul and I could talk about that have kind of reset that standard a little bit, both in the U.S. and Canada, and have made it more challenging now to necessarily get certain patents through. It um, doesn't mean that it can't be done. In fact, we still get patents in this space all the time. 
but you need to be smart about it. And you need to make sure that when you describe your invention, you're thinking back to those buckets and you're saying, well, how can I describe this? Is I'm going to, am I going to describe this as a machine? Am I going to think about this as some advanced process, uh, some technical process for, for moving money around, but in a way that, that deals with a technical problem. Um, and I think it's worth thinking about or taking it back to those original justifications for patents. Uh, patents were originally developed and, and uh, justified on the grounds that they promote progress. And the language of the original act was that it wasn't, wasn't just for any machine or any art. It was for useful inventions. And that means they're applied in some way or that there's an idea that's applied in some way to produce a useful result or a practical result of some sort. And it's important to have that in mind when you're thinking about what you're trying to patent. Is there a practical result? Or am I describing this practical result? And am I claiming the practical result when I, when I apply for this patent? Um, so, so I know I've seen some criteria that if you're doing something faster, cheaper, um, or better than what people used to do, that can be a clue that there might be something there that, that elevates it to the level of something that's patentable. Is that fair? Absolutely. I think um, that's definitely an improvement. Uh, if you can make a computer faster, more efficient, more secure, more reliable, uh, all of those things are improvements to an existing machine. And improvements are definitely within the category of things that are patentable. Uh, I, that can, are the correct I can imagine matter. in fintech, speed and efficiency counts. Right. And one of the big problems is that a lot of the way that early patent applications in this space were drafted, they could be done. They were, they were sort of described in such a broad way that they could have been done on a machine like a computer, but they could have also been done by a person with a pen and paper. And so you, you saw, you've seen over the last you know number of years, particularly since the Bilski decision in 2010, a real discussion from the patent offices that, well, this is a great idea, but I could carry this out. Your client could carry this out with a pen and paper given a significant enough time, um, or, or it's just something routine like that. And it's very abstract. So what we tried to do is to look at the things you've talked about, Don, you know, can we point to a particular uh, improvement in the processing speed or something that improves the efficiency? Mm -hmm. Can we point to the practical realities that a, a human being cannot do this in, in their lifetime? I've done a fair bit of work in the cryptography space on, on data security. And, you know, cryptography at its core is, is really just math. I mean, a lot of it here is what, you come, what it comes down to is really just doing complicated math. And given enough time, you or I, or maybe not, maybe not I, but certainly Paul could do that. Um, but you have to look at, can you do that in a practical time, right? If you're trying to, to do with data security around some e-commerce transaction, if I can't do that security in a practical time span of, you know, you know, a few seconds or less, then that's not a practical solution for, for the clients. So pointing out to the patent office that we're talking about, you know, very finite amounts of time doing things in a way that's automatic, that's seamless, that's robust. These are all of the things that get us away from these abstract ideas, which can be problematic, and into practical, technical solutions. Yeah, and I think the flip side of that is what definitely doesn't work, uh, and that's taking an existing process that's already, that's already known and saying, well, I'm just going to do this on a computer, or I'm going to throw this on the internet, or I'm going to take some other uh, well-known technology and use that uh, for, for with this idea. Mashing together two well-known concepts doesn't produce uh, doesn't necessarily produce a patentable invention. And I think that's that was part of the early struggle with this space with fintech and with software patents more generally was that a lot of people were taking ideas that were already out there. And Bilski was a perfect example. Mm -hmm. Maybe we can talk a little bit about Bilski, uh, but they were taking ideas that already existed 
and then basically saying, well, do this on a computer yeah, or Bilsky do this was on about the hedging, right? Yeah, Bilsky yeah. was about taking, uh, doing commodities hedging. And uh, it was essentially, you know, you buy some something at one price and you sell it at another price at a different time. And I think uh, the courts took a look at this and said to themselves, well, there's nothing new about this. And, um, and, that, and that, I think a lot of people looking at that case also said, thought the same thing. Intuitively, why should this per person get a patent on something that people have been doing for decades, if not centuries? Um, unfortunately, the case wasn't decided on the grounds of newness or non-obviousness. The court looked at it and said, well, this isn't the kind of thing that we want to patent. Uh, this is an abstract idea. It doesn't really fit the criteria of what we usually want to grant patents for. Yeah, it's not in one of the buckets that we'd like to see right. the patents. And it really muddied the waters, I think, and it created a lot of uncertainty around what should be patented and what shouldn't be patented, uh, not, to, not only for people in the... or uh, clients in the fintech space, but also in a lot of other areas, such as software patents more generally, and even outside of that. But that's created a, a real hassle for practitioners like you in the area trying to take, a, a, and this is a U.S. court decision, a U.S. court decision that kind of doesn't make sense and try to make sense out of it so your clients can get patents in this area. Uh, absolutely. And one of the big challenges actually was for, for a lot of folks um, who even tried to, to sort of figure out Bilski and write patents based on the Bilski standard. You know, a few years later, we have this Alice decision, which, again, kind of resets the definition of what is patentable subject matter. And here you have a court that's sort of you know, taking some cases that would have been filed after Bilski and basically tossing them out because they're, they're too abstract or they don't sufficiently recite the specific computer hardware. Um, you know, so there was this question mark um, in between Bilski and Alice. And now we're dealing with sort of the post-Alice world, um, which is what's relevant to you know, how we're drafting fintech applications today. So that makes sense. Alice takes us further down the rabbit hole. We're kind of already moving into the second part of our podcast, which is, so what is fintech and how do you get protection for fintech-related inventions? So give me a definition. What is fintech? <laughs> That's a, we could probably have an hour podcast just on that alone. I don't think there is a, a universal definition of fintech. It's, it's a lot of different things to different people. I think you could probably characterize it as a spectrum of things. Uh, fintech can be anything from a website that sells things uh, to some really complicated uh, computer systems that do some sort of transaction processing really quickly over the internet or over a private network. Um, it's really, there is no universal definition. It's sort of a catch-all term that covers a lot of different things. That also creates a bit of a challenge as well when it comes to patenting because you can't have a universal definition of what is a fintech patent um, because fintech is so many different things to so many different people. And, and from a practical perspective, what that means is when we start talking to fintech clients, what we're looking for is where do you fit in those buckets, right? Is this a piece of hardware? Is this something related to optical transmission of data between New York and Chicago for making sure transactions happen as quickly as possible? Is it something more ethereal? Is it some method of, of you know, moving money around in a way that makes it easy for the user to interact with their money or, or perhaps give them updates about transactions that are happening and so on? Um, is it something related to e-commerce? Like the Amazon case in Canada was really about, you know, the one-click patent and e-commerce and facilitating the ability to buy things on the internet. So are we talking about that type of a, of a case? So we always come back to those buckets of what's patentable and try to fit the fintech invention into one of those buckets. Yeah, I think that's a really important point is that regardless of whether where you fit, where you are on that spectrum with your fintech invention or your invention more generally, as patent agents, we, we put on our patent agent hat and we think about exactly that. 
where does this fit? What is the what is actually happening from a technological perspective uh, or other perspective? What's new? What's not novel? Uh, sorry, what's new and what's not obvious? And uh, how do we describe that and make sure that's the emphasis of the patent application so that when it does get examined, it's clearly within one of the patentable subject matter categories. Right. And so to your point, Don, now that we're down the rabbit hole, at least we kind of know where we are. It doesn't necessarily give us great certainty. There's still a lot of question marks, but at least we kind of know what the patent office is looking for and we'll draft an application to that standard. The other thing that you see is over time that there tends to be a pendulum shifting back and forth. And so, you know, you have earlier cases like State Street and Diamond v. Deere, where the threshold for patentability was quite low. Fast forward now to Bilski and Alice, where it seems to be a lot higher. But that isn't to say that in five years or 10 years, the pendulum may not shift back the other way. You know, even if the language in the statute isn't changed, right, the language that's been here for 200 years, that may be pretty static. Mm -hmm. How the courts are interpreting this, you know, tends to, to ebb and flow. So even if we're drafting an application today and it, it might be in the margins and it might be a difficult case, you know, it's possible and there's probably value often in filing these cases that are of marginal, you know, likelihood of success. Today. Today, because we know that the that things are going to change. And, and, you know, we've got a number of clients who, you know, some of them are very clearly within some of the buckets and have no trouble. We're going to get these through, no problem. Others will take a flyer and say, well, we think that this is, this is valuable enough that it's worth taking a bit of a chance. And, you know, hopefully the law will move. And we've seen it move, you know, here and there from case to case. Um, and we try to get those cases, um, or try to get the, the patents through based on, you know, changes in the cases as, as the tide kind of ebbs and flows. But as you say, if you don't put your foot in the door today, there's no chance of getting in if that door opens further in a few years. That's exactly right. And that's to Paul's point about novelty, right? Your, your own invention can be disclosure. So if you have an idea for something and decide not to patent it, you know, you're effectively creating your own sort of problem in the sense that you're not going to be able to file a patent five years later on something that's gone public mm-hmm. or something that you've offered to the public to, to sale, um, for sale. And, and circling back a little bit to your point about um, uh, how we look at preparing a patent application, I think our job as patent agents is to future-proof a little bit. We have to try and tease out what is the invention uh, from inventors. Oftentimes, inventors don't fully appreciate what it is they've invented. Like to them, what's what's new and clever about the invention might be very different from what it is to us uh, from a technological perspective or, or patent perspective. And so our job is to tease that out, uh, to identify what actually we think will be the point of novelty, uh, the, the, the thing, the kernel that will get the patent application granted and issued as a patent. Uh, Paul, I completely agree. And, and part of that is, I think, thinking like the competitor. Thinking about, you know, okay, you're doing this particular implementation and that's what you're focusing on. Commercially, that's the most important thing for you. If I'm your competitor, how would I compete with you? Not just today, but given the 20-year lifespan of the patents, how would I compete with you for the next two decades? And how can I do things similar to what you're doing that might try to avoid the, you know, an exact commercial copy of what you're actually selling or, or doing? So, yeah, I think that's really important because it gives us a, a way to, and, and I think that's one of the things that we bring to the table is the ability to have perspective uh, beyond sort of the individual client. So you raised two things in my mind. One is the non-obviousness, one or the inventiveness aspect. And the other is, what is the invention aspect? And bear with me, this is going to be a long CNN-type question or something. But on, <laughs> Thanks, the, non, on the non-obvious side, my, my perception of, in, of 
engineers, software engineers, software developers, or scientists is if they see somebody else doing something at the next bench and they go, that is really neat, chances are nine out of 10, that's going to pass the, the non-obviousness threshold. If, if that smart person hadn't thought of it, then probably people in the rest of the industry hadn't thought of it. So that, that's sort of that aspect of it. And that internally should give the people an idea, hey, maybe we've got something here. But I think the real trick is, is when you think you've got something, don't immediately disclaim it, oh, well, it's software related, so I can't get it, or it's just doing something we could do in our head, so I can't get it. Because it's what you people do that I think is kind of an extra layer of inventiveness, and that is look at the thing and figure out what's really going on here, and how can I characterize what's going on here as going into one of the buckets and fitting it in. And that's a real art and skill that I claim I don't have. I read patents, I don't write them. <laughs> but I but I think we should at least let our listeners know that don't just throw the baby out with the bathwater. If you don't let you don't you decide whether or not you've got an invention, have you people you patent agent slash lawyers decide whether or not you yeah, got it's a, a bit like sorry, your doctor says don't read what you hear don't listen to what you hear on the internet or read what you hear on the internet and take it face value well this may be on the internet and on <laughs> not iTunes, necessarily so. that but you know you need listen to make to sure this. yeah make sure you get the source right and make sure the source is verifiable yeah on the question of obviousness we see this all the time you know we'll sit down with an engineer or someone who says well this this can't be inventive it only took me three months of hard work to develop it and I'm thinking to myself you know. As an inventor, they don't understand how, how much goes into actually some of the work that they've, they've done and yeah. don't appreciate that it actually is probably a lot further down um, the spectrum of what's inventive than they realize. Everything is obvious in hindsight, but fortunately, yeah. hindsight is not permitted when it comes to assessing patents for non-obviousness. <laughs> so. Right. And so I often say, you know, if you find a problem, the technical solution to that problem, there's a pretty good chance it's patentable. Mm -hmm. That doesn't mean that someone hasn't done it before. That's a different analysis, but yeah. it, it meets that threshold of, You've solved a technical problem, um, and that may, be, may, be, may very well be patentable. There's a very famous case dealing with nuclear fuel rods, and the invention lay in the discovery that you had to clean these things every period of time, because if not, dust would accumulate at a certain schedule and actually interfered with the proper operation of the reactor. So the invention really came down to knowing when to clean the rods off to make sure that they stayed clean. In hindsight, that seems obvious, but at the time, it was a brand new discovery. Mm -hmm. um, and then the second part about, you know, what is and isn't inventive from the perspective of subject matter, you know, absolutely. I, I think that there's a lot that clients uh, don't understand when it comes to what can be patented, the thresholds, the questions we've talked about today. It's worth talking to a patent lawyer who can give you some guidance and say, look, you know, here's where the here's where you have a really good chance. Here's where you maybe have a, a weaker chance. But again, you know, you may want to think about long term, the lifespan of the patent being what it is, 20 years, you know, what may be sort of marginal today may not be marginal in two or three years. And, you know, that, that brings up an important point. The, the law in this area is constantly changing. It changes from year to year, uh, certainly from decade to decade. And uh, over the, the course of the past 20 years, there have been some pretty large swings of the pendulum from uh, be in, being in favor of patentability to against patentability and back to somewhere in the middle, I think, today. Uh, and so it's important when you're looking for advice in this area to get recent, up-to-date, current advice. Uh, because if you read an article off the internet from five years ago, you're, you're, you're looking at dated information that is probably not applicable today. Yeah. So assuming, assuming you're an inventor in the fintech space, and you've come up with what you think is an idea because the person next to you says, that's really neat. I wouldn't have thought of it. When should you be talking to a patent agent about drafting a patent? 
I like to say that it's never too early to talk to a patent agent. I mean, one of the things that we see all the time is people come to us very, very late in the game. And it may be that there's already been some disclosure. They've already had some sort of let the cat out of the bag, so to speak. And then it's too late and in some countries. And then it can be right? too late in many countries. That's right. It's particularly mm -hmm. in places like Europe, which can be very, very valuable in the space. So uh, conversely, coming to us early, you know, if, if you're just coming to us with the real genesis of an idea, we can give you some strategic guidance about the things to think about and the things to look for. So some of the stuff we've talked about today, but even just an education about, you know, if you come up with these ideas, here are the things to look for, you know, and come back and see me in a few months when you've, when you've got these more fleshed out. Mm -hmm. um, so it's never a bad idea to engage with somebody early on in the process. The big sort of black and white test, I think, would be before public disclosure. You know, if you're going to go public with an idea, if you're going to start showing it to investors in a really sort of wide way, you know, once the cat's out of the bag, you can't put it back in there. So public disclosure is kind of a bright line. Well, before that, you want to be speaking to a patent attorney or a patent agent. And it, it, it's, sorry, sorry, Don. Uh, it's important to note that uh, public disclosure doesn't just mean I've announced this on the Internet on a website. It can be as simple as I've described this to an investor uh, who wasn't under an NDA or I've told a family member who then described it to his friends because he thought it was a really clever idea. Um, all of those things can qualify as public disclosures. If you're releasing the information to people who aren't under our obligation to keep it secret or keep it confidential, then it is effectively a public disclosure that could count against you. Right, and you and you lose control of the information. You know, you may you may you may send something to somebody even under a non-disclosure agreement, but they may forward that information on to someone who isn't bound by the non-disclosure agreement, and all of a sudden you've, they've They've breached their confidence, fine, but that doesn't help you because now you have a public a public disclosure event that you know you can't put the genie back in the bottle. Mm -hmm. um, which yeah, it's important to sort of talk about these things early. So that's a, sort of a good rule of thumb. It's, it's never too early to engage with a patent lawyer. Jason, that's probably a, a good place to end today. But I sense we've got a lot of room here for other podcasts on other topics related to patentability disclosure, non-disclosure agreements, and fintech. Happy but to come back anytime, Bob. Thank you very much, uh, Jason. Thank you, Paul, for these insights. Thank you, Don. Thank you. Our guests today have been Paul Horbel of our Toronto office, who heads up our fintech group, and Jason Hines of our Waterloo office. Information on this episode should not be taken as legal advice. Paul, Jason, and our other colleagues here at Breskin and Parr would, though, be pleased to advise you. You can subscribe to our podcast by visiting breskinpar.com slash podcast. There you can access all the episodes, additional information on each topic, and stay on top of what's happening with IP in Canada. So subscribe and follow us wherever you listen to your podcast. That way you'll never miss an episode. It's free and it'll notify you when there's a new one. Thank you for listening to today's episode presented by Breskin and Parr LLP. Until next time.